We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Let's turn to Ruth chapter 4, all right? While you're turning there, uh, I actually had a story of something that happened this week I could share with you. It actually happened last Sunday when Bethany and I were driving home from gathering, and so, but, you know, some of you haven't had a chance to tell about it yet. So I was driving home. We drove separate, separate cars that day, and so Bethany drove home with the kids, and then I drove home a little later after putting some stuff away here, and I got to just a little bit down the road from my house, stopped at a light. And I saw this lady standing out there on the corner, and it looked like she was conversing with the car in front of me, like she was hearing a conversation with them. Um, but then it looked like maybe, maybe she wasn't. Maybe she was actually just trying to get their attention, right? And so she was, like, kind of waving and then doing this and then waving. And so I was like, oh, maybe I, I thought at first they were talking. Maybe not. Maybe she needs help with something. So then she apparently couldn't get their attention, so then she turns to me, and she starts doing the same thing. But then the light turned green. So I was like, oh, I got to go. Sorry. So I took off, um, and I went home, and then I just didn't, oh, man, like, it didn't sit right with me. And so I got in the door, and I told Bethany, I was like, so there's this lady over there. And she's like, yeah, I drove by her, too. Same thing happened. And then, like, I wasn't so sure, like, what to do. And then now you're coming home and telling me the same story. So like, all right, let's go hop in the car. We left the boys at home for a minute. Two of us hopped in the car. Let's drive back, see if we could find her. So we drove back. And sure enough, we found her just a little ways down from where I saw her, sitting in the shade. And we stopped. We're like, hey, is everything all right? Do you need anything? Uh, we brought some water bottles and some snacks. And she was like, I'm trying to find this, this street, and uh, you know, I'm not sure where to go. So then we pulled it up on our map, and she's like, do you think you can give me a ride? And we kind of looked at each other, and Bethany's like, yeah, sure, get in. So she gets in the back of the car. And when Bethany was handing her the water, she's like, here, do you want something to drink? She's like, oh, no, I'm good. I've been drinking this. And she's got like a tall boy can of Tecate. And we're like, that's not going to hydrate you. Please drink the water. Uh, and then she gets in and like you can smell that Tecate pretty strong, right? Like um, that's a beer, by the way, if you didn't know that. Uh, and so like, the whole car was smelling of it. And we're driving and she's talking with Bethany. And I was driving. And then I said something at some point and she goes, oh, is that your husband? And Bethany said, yeah, that's my husband. And she goes, ooh, you're lucky. Now, I'm not saying this as a humble brag because this is a lady who's inebriated and her vision's probably impaired from that Tecate. So it's not like she's seeing straight anyway, okay? But she's like, ooh, you're lucky. And then I was like, ooh, this is going to get interesting, right? Just keep driving. And then uh, so she keeps talking and she's like, how'd you guys meet? And Bethany says, oh, actually, we met at church like a long time ago when we were like teenagers and you know, and so they're conversing, and the lady goes, can you find me a, a boyfriend like, like that? Can you find me a Jesus Christ boyfriend, she said. And Bethany's like, I don't, I don't know if I can do that for you. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I need a Jesus Christ boyfriend. And just so like several times throughout the, the car ride, she brought that back up. Do you think you could find me a Jesus Christ boyfriend? And so Bethany, you know, we're going through the book of Ruth, and she goes, you got to wait for your own Boaz. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. She did not say that. <laughs> She did not say that. No, she was like, she said something more they affected. Like, well, I can tell you about Jesus Christ, but I can't really help you find a Jesus Christ boyfriend. Pray for that woman. Uh, I, I don't think we got her name, but pray for her. Um, we actually just dropped her off right around the corner from here. And so we told her like where we are and stuff too. And so 
who knows? Uh, I don't think she'll remember much of the conversation, but this is a woman who bears the image of God, who created us in his image as well. And at least we got to get her out of the heat for a little bit in that moment and give her some water, right? But uh, keep her in your, your prayers. But I bring that up because what's funny is like what she was asking for, you get me a Jesus Christ boyfriend, is what a lot of times like you see um, in the church looking for, right? Like there is this like whole idea around specifically this book of Ruth that we're in, these memes that go around about finding your Boaz, right? Anthony actually reminded me of one this week that I can't fully repeat in here, but if you were to take the name Boaz and let's pretend that it's a first and last name, it's not, his, his name is Boaz. But if Bo is his first name, then the, the joke goes something like, you know, while you're waiting for your Boaz, don't settle for one of his relatives, broke or Poe, or Lazy, or Lion. I'll let you fill in the blanks. Wait for your Boaz, okay? You see where that's going. Or there's another meme, uh, Russ Baca, who's on here on Zoom today, he sent me this. We got a picture of this meme today. So Boaz's favorite pickup line to Ruth in the field, before I met you, I was ruthless. Get it? You see kids because her name's Ruth? Never mind. Okay. So that's what a lot of times this book of Ruth has been like sidelined to, delineated to, is like this romance story between Boaz and Ruth, right? And, and ladies, you just got to wait for your Boaz. And, and women like, or and guys, like you got to find a Proverbs 31 woman like they say Ruth was kind of like, right? But that's, that's not her name, man. That's not what this book is really about at all. And all that romance dies when you get to scenes like uh, when Ruth, uncovers Boaz's feet, and then she tells him, you are legally obligated to care for me, right? All the romance dies when Boaz goes, yeah, that's true, but there's another person who has legal right to you first, right? Like, there's, it's not a romance story at all. It's a story of something much deeper happening, a story of redemption for Ruth, who's a foreign woman, for Naomi, her mother-in-law, who's bitter from life, for all of the Israelites, and eventually, it's a story of the redemption for the whole world. And so in chapter one, we heard that you get this story that Naomi's on her way back to Bethlehem. She tells her two daughter-in-laws, you can go back home. There's no need for you to come and suffer in a foreign land as a foreign widow with me. So go back to your homes. And Orpah does, but Ruth says, no, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God, which we said was a mirrored response to what God has always said to his people, right? Where you live, I will live. You will be my people and I will be your God. So this is the response that like God was looking for from Israel to respond back with, yes, wherever you go, God, we go. We're your people, you're our God. And it happens not through Israelites, it happens through this foreign Moabite woman, Ruth. So she shows what this faithfulness looks like, a faithful loyalty. And then chapter two, you get to Boaz and she's working in the fields and you find this picture of what Israel was supposed to do as they were blessed to be a blessing to others, that Boaz has all this power, this position of authority, all this wealth, he owns this land and he uses his power to care for the vulnerable. So what Israel was called to, right? And it reminds us of Jesus. And in fact, we see in, in Philippians 2, I just wanna read this real quick to us. Philippians 2, Paul wrote this of Jesus. He says, adopt the same, in verse five, the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Actually, the, that's, I read the word that you're probably more familiar with, but in the CSB translation I'm reading here, what that word can also be translated to 
is he didn't see it as something to be exploited. So he didn't exploit his power. Being the king over all creation, the son of God sitting in his throne in heaven, he didn't exploit that power. Instead, he gave it all up in order to come down to the oppressed and the vulnerable and care for them. And so what we see in that story is not the story the world tells that like privilege is this bad thing or that if you, on the other side of that, like, man, let's, let's pretend privilege doesn't exist because I've been made to feel shame for having it. But instead we see a biblical view that privilege is a blessing from God and we are blessed to be a blessing. So what do you do with that privilege? And so Boaz shows us a picture of what Christ ends up doing ultimately, taking that power and that position of privilege and using it to give and care for the vulnerable and the oppressed. So then we get to chapter three, which we did last week, and you see that God has a plan even when his people keep messing that up over and over and over again. And so it started off with Naomi having this plan, putting this plan into motion of how she was going to care for Ruth. And it violated the way God had called them to live. And yet, the last moment when it seems like this cycle is just gonna keep repeating itself, God intervenes through the character of Boaz and Ruth saying, no, no, this is how we're gonna do this right. So we left the end of that chapter going, how is it gonna happen? Is Boaz going to be able to redeem Ruth and Naomi, both of these widows, is he going to be able to care for and provide for them? Because there's another person who is closer in that family who actually has in this culture a legal right, first rights of refusal. And so Boaz goes, I, I, I gotta go check with him first. Wait, be patient. That's where we find ourselves in Ruth chapter four. I'm gonna read and then we'll pray. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. And then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Remember, Elimelech was Naomi's husband who passed away. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so I will know because there isn't any other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. So he's saying, I'm next in line. You get first rights. If you don't want it, I'll take it. I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Verse six, the redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. 
All the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathath and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He laid with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and became his nanny. The neighbor woman said, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, not Salmon, but that's how it's spelled. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So we end with a riveting genealogy. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to understand your words to us this morning. God, that you would use it to transform our hearts and our minds, fill us with your Holy Spirit. May we become more and more like your perfect son, Jesus. May we see the redemption that you held out to Ruth and Naomi and Israel is now extended to us as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there's a lot of weird stuff happening in this book. Remember we talked about we come into this story as foreigners, right? We enter into the story as foreigners. We don't know what's going on here exactly unless we do a little bit of digging and some research and we pray for wisdom in all honesty because we're entering into cultural practices that we don't really have. We don't have the idea of a family redeemer. I mean, just listen to, to the idea here that like you, you have a widow in your family and now there's an obligation for someone in that family to go and marry that woman so that your family lineage could continue. It sounds a little weird to us, right? And then you have this whole scene right now where a dude takes off his sandal and goes, here you go, redeemer yourself. Like I've heard of like mothers taking off their shoes and throwing them at people before when they're angry, but nothing like this. This is weird, right? Now, I want us to think about it. Every culture has weird customs. Like you guys have heard of like a spit handshake, right? You spin your hand, you shake hands, and that's how you agree to something. Where did that come from? That's super weird too. And so we could just chalk it up to this is a weird cultural thing, and surely like, there's, there's something to that. But I think there's actually a lot more significance happening here in that moment of removing the sandal. Let's take, if you can hop with me in our time machine. I talked about Back to the Future last week. Let's hop in our DeLorean. Let's travel back to Deuteronomy 25, okay? I think we... Have that up on the screen. In Deuteronomy 25, this is when this whole idea of a family redeemer gets instituted. When, when this whole idea comes into play for this culture of Israel is telling them, hey, if, and specifically right now it's talking about a brother. If you have a brother who passes away, marry the widowed wife so that you can carry on his lineage, Right? And so this is what it says, though, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 7. But if the man doesn't want to marry his sister-in-law, sounds like there's good reason for that. 
she is to go to the elders at the city gate and say, my brother-in-law refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He isn't willing to perform the duty of brother-in-law for me. I'm really glad that the duties of a brother-in-law are much different today. Uh, He's not willing to do this. The elders of his city will summon him and speak with him. If he persists and says, I don't want to marry her, then his sister-in-law will go up to him in the sight of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. Then she will declare, this is what is done to a man who will not build up his brother's house. We were talking about with our surge table yesterday, just how often we take little bits and pieces of the Bible for devotionals. Has that ever shown up in any of your morning devotionals? Is that any of your life verses? Probably not, right? Like what in the world is happening here? Super weird. Now remember, we're foreigners to the story. We live in a culture that is built on individual progress, right? It's built on building ourselves up, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. This is a culture that's built more on honor, shame in the community. And so we're, we're individualized. They're communal. We're around justice, what's right and who's wronged who and, and being termed legally innocent or not. And this is a culture that doesn't care so much about what's legally termed innocent or not. It's about honor and shame. And so when you bring shame on yourself, what you do is you bring shame on your whole household. And there are a lot of different ways you could bring shame on yourself. This is one of them. When your brother dies or a family member passes away and they had a wife but no children yet, it would have brought shame to his household's name to not have sons. Remember we talked about that, how that's, that's how a woman kind of showed her value and worth in this society was bearing sons to her husband. And so in order to not let shame come on your brother's household or your family member's household, you now had this responsibility to take on that wife, let her have sons. They actually would count towards your brother's lineage. So you're restoring honor to this household, Right? Super weird, I know. Remember, we're the foreigners to the story, though. We have a different culture. We're stepping into their culture for a moment, okay? And so they would do this to bring honor there. But if you were unwilling to do it, shame on your household. So in front of everybody, in front of the elders, in the town square, what you do is you give them another opportunity. Are you willing to do what is right by your brother? Are you willing to do what is right by this woman? Because now as a widow, she can't go out and work a job and she can't have her own household and care for herself in the same way. Are you going to care for her? And if he still says, no, I'm not gonna do it, then there's this weird ceremony that shows shame on his whole household. Part of it's spitting in your face. That one makes sense to me. I don't wanna get spat on in the face. That would like, I'd feel a little bit of shame right there too, right? I remember one time I was in like seventh grade and I was walking home from school, I was going around the, like the gated bike area, and all of a sudden just a loogie right on my forehead there. And I was like, what in the, there was some fists thrown after that. Because you don't shame me like that in front of people, right? Like, I get that one. But the sandal thing's weird. Like, you remove his sandal, and then you spit in his face. Shame on your household. So in this, in this culture, in this custom, the idea of shoes was not like everybody has them like most of us do now, right? I got a lot of shoes in my closet right now. But having shoes showed dignity 
It showed honor. It showed wealth even. That you could walk through the streets of Moab or Bethlehem or wherever you lived. And even though like there's dirty, filthy animals doing their business everywhere, like you got shoes to protect your feet and you could stay clean and stay dignified. You know who didn't have shoes were slaves. You know who didn't have shoes were often the women gleaning in the fields like we saw Ruth doing in chapter two. But the dignified people, they had shoes and they had honor. And they also had, they didn't have shoes like us. They had sandals and they had a locking mechanism to keep it in place. And so what you're doing when you unlock that is you're showing you have broken something. You've broken an agreement. And you take the shoe off because you now have lost your dignity, shame on your household. That's what this represented. So what happens in Ruth 4 is you get to this dude, and I love like when it says he comes to the guy he was speaking about, one of the translations is he said, come over here and sit down, Mr. So-and-so. It's like they don't even give him a name in this story because he's brought shame on his family, on his household, on himself. So what happens is this dude hears like, hey, there's an opportunity to buy back Naomi and Elimelech's land. Do you want it? And the dude's like, yep, count me in, sign me up. I'm a landowner. It's a business transaction. How do I benefit from this situation? And Boaz is like, okay, cool. He's very wise in the way he does this. You want to buy the land? Yes. Okay, know that when you do, you also are entering into an agreement to redeem Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner, the refugee, the barren widow who could not provide sons to her previous husband and who's been working hard, gleaning in the fields for several months. Know that you're also taking her on. What does the guy do? Let me take off my shoe real quick. He willingly takes that shame on to avoid taking on the shame of marrying Ruth. He willingly says, no, no, here, let me take my own shoe off real quick. Let me take this shame on me. Let me lose my own dignity rather than marry this woman, rather than care for her and her family. When it, when it was a matter of me owning their land, I'm all for it. But when it comes to me sacrificing something for their sake, nah, count me out. How often, let's just be real with ourselves for a moment. Like how often is God calling us to something and when it serves us, count me in God. I could see the benefit in that. Yeah, let me hear Jeremiah 29, 11, all, all the more. Like, yes, you're gonna, you know, the plans you have for me to provide me a future. Like, awesome, I'm all for that. And then let's forget the rest of Jeremiah 29 where it's in the context of, no, no, you're about to go into exile. You're about to be captured by the Babylons, Babylonians. And you're going to be, it's going to be rough, but I know the plans I have for you. All right. Nope. Count me out on that part, God. Like, seriously, how often do we come to that place and it's like, oh, this is going to cost me? Surely God just wants me to be happy, right? Surely God just wants me to prosper. This can't be his will for me. If you're being real with yourselves, you might have come to the same place that I've come to this week of going like, oh, dang, that's me. 
Much as I want to be someone's Boaz, I'm this other dude. I'm his relative. So this man goes, nope, take my shoe, count me out. No, thank you. I'm good. And he passes on that opportunity. So Boaz goes, okay, cool. Everybody here is a witness. This refugee, foreign, barren, widow, poor, working woman. You are all witnesses. Every dignified elder in our town right now, you get to witness, I will marry this woman. I will redeem this family. I will take the expenses on myself. Yes, I get the land. I also have the expenses of caring for two more people, not just Ruth, but her mother-in-law, Naomi, as well. The guy, what did the guy say? He goes, not only does he say, he won't redeem it. Verse six, the redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. There's a reality here that like, there probably would have cost a lot of money to have two more mouths to feed. But probably also what's really happening here is he's going, if I marry this foreign Moabite woman, which Israelites did not do at that time, like I'll be cut off from my own family inheritance because of the shame I'm bringing. And Boaz goes, I'm gonna take that risk. Everybody here, I want you to know it. I want you to see it. This is what's happening. He redeems her. That word redeem, something we say a lot in church culture, right? But what does it actually mean? Does anyone have any thoughts? I would love to hear. Zoom, you could jump on too. Just say it out loud. Does anybody want to take a stab at what does that word redeem mean? Is anyone at home? You're at home, so what you could do is Google it real quick and no one's going to know. And then, like, sound like you're super smart. The rest of you, I'm watching you on your phones. I see you, Aaron, Googling it. Yeah, yeah, to restore to its original value or its purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Let's guess. Anyone else want to add to it? That was really good. And, and that's absolutely a key component to it. Uh, and then yet redemption has a even much bigger picture than restoration too. It includes restoration. But redemption also comes at a cost to the one doing the restoration. Redemption means you have to pay something in order to restore this thing, right? There's a cost to it. And so to do like restoration on, on a house, on an old house, like we did with ours, like we had to first purchase the house, and we had to take out a loan to do that and all that. And like, it came at great expense to us. And then we could start restoring this house to what it once was or, or maybe even better, right? In this context, a family redeemer, what happened is if you were to redeem a family member's land, usually what, what that entailed was like that land had a little bit of debt to it. But it was a business decision for that first redeemer because if I can get that land working again, it'll start to produce for me, right? So in the long run, it's an investment. Or another way would be if you have a family member who is a slave and you go redeem that person. You buy, you pay back everything they owed that got them into slavery in the first place so that you could buy their freedom. You don't really get anything out of that. You're setting this person free, but you're paying all their debt. That one didn't happen that often. Wonder why. The land one, people were about that. An investment opportunity. Buying back a slave, not so much. The widow was the third way you would see a family redeemer. 
And again, this incurred a debt on you, a, a cost, a responsibility. Now I have another mouth to feed. Now I have a person to care for. Not only that, I'm bringing all the cultural baggage that comes with having a widow in your household. And in, in a culture of honor, shame, you're taking a little bit of that on just in the very nature that she was a widow once. So you bring that on to you, you incur that debt. But God called his people to do that. He said, I want you at your expense to look out for other people who are vulnerable. You pay something of yourself to bring restoration and redemption to others. And this first guy goes, no, thank you. And Boaz goes, no, I'll do it. And what the story reminds us of is this picture of all of Israel. That all of Israel was this first redeemer, Mr. So-and-so that God called all of Israel to be a light to the nations, to be a people who were blessed to be a blessing, to invite the other nations into God's community, to show them what their good God was like, to invite them in. And instead, what they always continually did time and time again was they would push the other nations out, they would get into wars with them, or they would expect God to come and destroy those other nations on their behalf. Or if they did bring them in, they brought in everything. They brought in all their false gods, all the things they worshiped at the sake of worshiping the true God. There was no redeeming happening. You see what happened on that last one there? They would bring in the other nations if there was something that they could benefit from. Yeah, yeah, bring in your idols and your false gods. I see that something's working for you. It's a business decision again. Sure, I'll buy back this land because it might produce for me one day. Yeah, I'll, I'll take these people in because it seems like they're wealthy. I want their gods. I want their idols in my house. When does this benefit me? But when we're gonna start Jonah next week, when it comes to like, do you go share God's plan of redemption and restoration and forgiveness and salvation to Nineveh, who's just awful and they're killing everybody? and they're violent, and there's nothing you can get out of it except for maybe die in the process? Nope, count me out. So this was the picture of Israel. That first redeemer failed at their job. And so another redeemer had to come, right? Another redeemer has to enter the scene. And this is what we find in John chapter one when John, the baptizer, is being asked, hey, are you that guy? Are you the one that they're talking about? John chapter one, when John's asked this, verse 26, he says, listen, I baptize with water. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. And he is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. Do you catch what's happening right there? This is not just another weird saying of like, hey, I'm not worthy to, to walk in his shoes, like we would say today. He's saying I can't go and untie the sandal from him and take it off and take away his call to redeem this people. He wears that shoe. It doesn't fit me. Take the shoe off of me, John's saying. I'm not the guy. There is another redeemer coming after me who is better than me and who is better than we have been, Israel, and he will redeem God's people at great expense to him, at great cost to him. Not because of what he will get out of it. Remember, we started Philippians 2. Jesus, having equality with God, 
being one with him. He didn't see that as something to be grasped or exploited, but instead he gives it all out. He pours it out and he humbles himself, taking on the form of a servant, taking on the form of humanity and going to death on a cross. Culture of honor and shame. What did they do? To shame you, they would string you up on a cross in the highways and byways, in the town square, so everyone would see, stripped naked, hung and bloody, on a cross, dying. Everyone knows this person did something. Shame on their household. And Jesus takes all the shame on himself. In front of everybody, he goes, I will redeem them. I'll take that cost. I love how Ruth points us to that. It ends in chapter four with that very thrilling genealogy. Remember? How many of you, be honest, tuned out when I started naming names? So-and-so gave birth to so-and-so and so on, right? But let's, let's listen to that real quick once again. In verse 17, the neighbor woman said, a son has been born to Naomi. It was really a Ruth's child with Boaz, but bringing honor back to the household of Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You guys remember King David, right? Pointing forward to, hey, the like, probably best king Israel ever had, who was still a bit of a mess, but the best king they ever had came from this lineage of foreign women. Ruth, a Moabite, and on Boaz's side, you got Rahab, who was a prostitute. King David comes from that, but it goes on. It says, now, these are the family records of Perez. So it's going back even further. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nishan, Nishan fathered Solomon, Solomon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. I want you to do something with me real quick. The last thing we're gonna do, flip over to Matthew, chapter one. Matthew's your first book in the New Testament. Chapter one. Skip verse one, let's go to verse two. We can put it up on the screen. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Another riveting genealogy, right? How many of you enjoy family trees? They bore me, but this one's awesome. Judah fathered Perez and Zorah by Tamar. That's the first time a woman's mentioned in that genealogy. Interesting. Tamar had all all kinds of scandals herself about where her child come, came from. That's another story. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered, wait, hold on. That's starting to sound familiar. Ruth 4 started with Perez, didn't it? All right, here we go. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nishan. Nishan fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz by who? Rahab. Another time a woman's mentioned. Again, not one you would think would have honor and dignity on her name. Boaz fathered Obed by who? Ruth. You guys know that one, right? By Ruth, third woman mentioned in the genealogy. Again, you wouldn't think would have a lot of honor. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered King David. There's a lot more. Let's skip forward. Go to verse 16. This continues for a while. And we get to verse 16. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of who? Another female. Mary, who gave birth to who? 
You can say this one loud. Come on. Jesus, who is called the Christ. I told you to skip verse one. Go back to verse one again. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This whole story of Ruth is pointing forward, not just the fact that King David comes out of her lineage, but there's a better redeemer coming. Jesus himself comes from this lineage. Jesus does perfectly what Israel was always supposed to do and never did, right? Jesus was the perfect Israelite, the true Israelite, the one who actually comes from his father, the God of Israel, Yahweh. And not only that, but this perfect true Israelite comes from the lineage of foreign women who are caught up in scandals and shame on their household and family name. Why? Because what was Israel always supposed to do? Remember, extend this invitation of blessing to all the nations, to welcome them in. You are blessed to be a blessing. So Jesus, the true Israelite, does just that. He comes from that, and then he does it fully by extending salvation and redemption to all people. If you saw our kids' lesson for this week, that's the main point. God's redemption is for all people. Not the ones we think deserve it, not the ones who got their stuff together, not the ones who look like us, but for all people. And not only that, for you, for me, that we have a truer, better redeemer. And I know right now with a lot of stuff going on, it's really easy to look to all kinds of other things for redemption, to look to all kinds of other things for salvation and even satisfaction. Election season, presidential election season is upon us. I want you to know, like as clear as I can say it, your redemption is not in a political party. Your redemption is not who gets into office. The redemption of America is not based on that. All right, our redemption from like COVID and economic downturn and all that, it doesn't come from the WHO or CDC. It doesn't come from your local officials. Our redemption comes from Jesus alone. We're saying this one, only Jesus. We have a truer, better redeemer. They were waiting on him to come in the book of Ruth, but we've seen him come already. How do we live like that's true? How do we live in such a way as Jesus did where we are showing that truth and blessing, that privilege of knowing this redeemer to the world around us? That we're using that blessing and that privilege to be a blessing to others, to the vulnerable, to the poor, to the oppressed, to those who don't know Jesus yet and inviting them in. Would you guys pray with me that we would do that this week? And like, I, I know I, I often end with something like that. Like, that's how you know, okay, sermon's ending, good, he's done. He said, would you pray with me? Like, okay, good, cool, what time is it, right? No, 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 like, I mean it. Like, would we really pray that this week we would actually live in that truth? That like every day this week we'd wake up with, how do I use this blessing of salvation given to me to be a blessing to others?